So this morning, I'm going to do my best, and we're going to move through uh, what are a lot of truths this morning. And uh, what we're doing this morning, uh, if you're new around here, great, great first week because you get to see what we believe. And uh, never more, uh, at least in my lifetime, has it been important that the church, in our church, the church, is just very clear on doctrinally, where do we stand? And the, the church as a whole uh, is under attack both from inside and outside, both internal and exter- external forces um, working to shake the foundations of the church that Jesus came to plant. And so I believe it is imperative that as we study the opening church in Acts chapter 2, that we revisit what it was that they were originally devoted to said these words, uh, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching. And uh, this morning, I want us to help understand what did they mean by the apostles' teaching? What do we draw from that? For we too should be devoted to it as they were. And so this morning, I want to walk through, and where this is going to leave us is me walking through our core doctrines as a church this morning. Uh, And and so there's going to be a lot of notes. I'm going to read a lot of scripture. Uh, If you want these doctrines so that you have them, uh, you can send, I'm going to give out an email address later. Uh, You can send Jamie an email and she will email you over a list of all of these. Uh, That way you can just have them available. Uh, But I believe this is absolutely important. Uh, You don't have to go far. You you don't have to uh, go to California uh, or or go to some other place where you would say, ah, yes, I'm I'm sure they've changed doctrine there. Uh, No, you can just drive down streets in our uh, our city right here to see how the church or, or elements of the church have already begun to gone astray on what we're talking about this morning. And the Matthew passage that I read is an imperative setup because it reminds us that where there is no truth, there can, uh, the, the house will not stand. And so if we want the church to stand, then it must stand on truth. And so uh, a few things as way of setup this morning. Uh, first, this idea, sometimes it has been said that doctrine divides. So doctrine is so divisive. No, not in the church. In the church, doctrine unifies, not divides. In fact, it is proper doctrine that draws the church together and brings us together because we're saying, no, we believe the same things. Now, I'll make a distinction between secondary and primary doctrines. Secondary doctrines can divide, but core doctrines are what make us who we are. As I've said repeatedly before, Christians believe the Bible. Christians believe core doctrine. Secondly, we see that in this setup here, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and then the fellowship. Doctrine first fellowship second. Sometimes people will say, let's disregard doctrine. Let's set doctrine aside and let's just unify around fellowship. Let's just unify around friendship. Let's just unify around relationship. No, it is proper doctrine that allows Christians to have proper relationship or fellowship. Uh, Number three, Uh, This teaching this morning reminds us the absolute essential nature of Christ-centered, biblically accurate teaching. Teaching is imperative and has always been imperative to the movement of the church. From the beginning, there are instruction after instruction. Uh, in one, in Second Timothy chapter two, Paul says, uh, "Pass on what I've taught you or entrusted to you to faithful men who will then teach others." From the beginning, the passage of the church is supposed to go from generation to generation as people teach these truths. And so, even this morning, as we rally around these truths, we—and uh, this is not. Uh, inflammatory to say this. We're not just doing this this morning for our good. We are doing this this morning for the good of the church 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and 200 years from now, because rallying around these core doctrines and then teaching them on has been what has allowed the church to continue for as long as it has. And we're teaching good, biblically accurate, Jesus-elevated teaching disappears so does the church. 
You say, well, where is this present? Go to Europe and look at the church there and how it died through the lack of proper biblical teaching. And so we do, our, our work here this morning uh, is, is very important, right? And this is why we always say that, that we must believe the Bible, churches must believe the Bible, we must teach and affirm the scriptures. Um, this morning, as I talk about the apostles' teaching, let me give you just three quick, uh, here's what the apostles' teaching means when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, first, it meant they devoted themselves to understanding the entirety of scripture uh, and how it reveals the gospel, a great passage of scripture in that light uh, is, you can look this up later, it's in Luke 24, I believe it's verse 27, uh, and it just lays out how the scriptures point to Jesus. If you were, we were singing that song, Same God, and uh, there's one line in there that we changed, and some of you probably caught it, and you're like, why'd you change that line? A little bit of a doctrinal thing, right? It's not about us beating our Goliath, it's about the fact that Jesus beats our Goliath for us, right? Why? Because the scriptures point us to Jesus, not ourselves, Right? And so that's, uh, that's the, the, the first thing, the entirety of Scripture. That was the apostles' teaching. The second thing the apostles' teaching was is proper doctrine. The third thing that the apostles' teaching was instruction on how to live a godly life and how to engage in his body, the church. And so in uh, Acts chapter 2, in the first church launch, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the entirety of Scripture, scripture and how it reveals the gospel. They devoted themselves to proper doctrine. And they devoted themselves to being, to being instructed on how to live a godly life. And then as you see the epistles, uh, the, the letters that came after this particular moment in history, they just affirm these three things. The entirety of Scripture pointing to Christ, and the establishment of proper doctrine, and then good instruction on how to live a life honoring Christ. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, before I hop into our core doctrines, let me give you five warnings this morning, okay? Five warnings. I'll do these quickly. Number one, to fundamentally disagree with any of these, I will put in parentheses here except one, and I will kind of explain that when we get there, would leave you out of step with evangelical Christianity and what has fundamentally been called Christianity for centuries, so if you walk away going, I don't agree with one, three, five, or seven, you do not agree with historical Christianity. You don't. Number two, all of these definitions are accurate. They are adequate for our purposes this morning, but they are also admittedly incomplete. We could have written positional papers. I could have pointed you to 400 different verses on each and every one of these. In fact, this is like 11 sermons in one sermon this morning. And 11 sermons, 1,100 sermons, okay? We're talking about the core doctrines of the faith. And so they are accurate, but admittedly, they're incomplete. And so don't jump to conclusions just because you don't see a certain word or a certain verse that I'm referencing, okay? I, I'm, I'm acknowledging beforehand. Number three, uh, um, as a post-denominational church, this is a term that we came up with ourselves, okay? Uh, as a post-denominational church, we intentionally choose to elevate core doctrines, what we're looking at this morning, that unify rather than divide God's church. We choose to discuss rather than divide on secondary doctrines. That's a choice we're making. And by default, when you enter into relationship here and fellowship here as a church, it is a choice that you are making as well. Number four, by laying these out and unifying them around, around them, it binds us together and helps us clearly understand the core issues of our faith. We could spend a lifetime pursuing a deeper understanding of just these doctrines and never grow bored. There are great secondary doctrines, great third-level uh, doctrines that are really fun to talk about. But I can assure you that for most of us, we will not spend enough time studying in our lifetime just these ones here. And there is plenty of depth, books, volumes written on just these core doctrines alone. Warning number five. Proper doctrine, this one's not really a warning. It's just to, to the essential nature of what we're doing this morning. Proper doctrine helps produce proper living and proper church structure. Said on the, the inverse, improper doctrine will lead to improper living and will lead to corrupt or perverted or weakened church structure. This is critically important. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
And again, a third of that was core doctrine. And so that's why this morning we are laying out what our core doctrines are as a church. And so if you're new around here, whether it's your first week, you've been coming around a couple of months, you've never heard me walk through this this morning. I think this is the first time I've ever really done this on the weekend where I've just walked through all of them. Uh, then, you know, we get an opportunity right now to rally around. And then I want to end us today um, pledging a couple of things one to another. All right, let's go through them. If you're taking notes, good luck. Oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out the doctrine, then I'm going to read a verse, a verse that helps us understand this doctrine, and then I'm going to list out some of the modern heresies that are um, invading the church, all right? And um, try... I'm just going to try to be real honest. I, I try to be honest every week. I should clarify that. I'm going to try to be very clear today on, on certain things that have invaded our church from a doc, not our church, the church, from a doctrinal perspective, okay? All right, here we go. Number one, some of you, you're doctrinal nerds and you are so giddy right now. Others of you, this is good, I promise, okay? We believe in one God who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is loving, holy, and just. By the way, we could just say amen at the end of every one of these because they preach like a sermon. I mean, they, they read like a sermon. I mean, this is, this, is, uh, this is what we're about. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Again, one verse that, to help us understand this one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. This is typically known as the Trinitarian or the triune nature of God. We know the word Trinity, most of us do. It's not in the Bible, but the idea is everywhere. We could look at John 1. We could look at Genesis. Uh, we could look at uh, a variety of different scriptures that would help us elevate. But we uh, also know that there is just one God, though he does exist in these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Our um, objective as a church has always been to teach on all three of these distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll hit... Uh, each of these later. Uh, he is loving, holy, and just. He is a lot of other things, and I could have laid out a lot of other things, but he is those three things, loving and holy, perfect in all of his holiness, and just. And the loving and the justness, they certainly work together. We'll hit that a little bit more later. Let's talk about some of the common heresies. Number one, modalism. This is the idea that God switches between each mode, but is not three distinct people. We simply reject that as heresy. By the way, this morning, when I use the word heresy, I will also say this. There are two types of heretics. There are accidental heretics. I had one in a life group once, and it was a lot of fun. Okay? And here's why. Because this individual would say, I think this. And, and we'd all kind of listen and go, okay, you're, you're, what you're saying is heresy, but your heart, okay? And I know you're like, oh, the heart is evil, and I get all that again. Okay. But your, your motive in this moment is that you think you're saying the right thing. And so um, I don't need to hit you with a baseball bat, okay? Uh, I need to love you by instructing this is, this is what is actually true, okay? Some of you this morning, you might be accidental heretics. Okay, I love you, we'll correct it, and we'll move on uh, together. Others are intentional heretics, all right? Uh, and that means they know the truth, okay, but they're rejecting the truth and they're propagating something that is untrue, and that's a problem, okay? We don't need to hit them with a baseball bat either, but uh, we do need to correct, all right? So uh, that wasn't the part of the modalism point, by the way. That was just general. Number two, this one's popular. I hear this one, even from Christians. Well, Allah and God are the same. Allah and God are, well, God, you know, God, there's just God, right? And we kind of hear that right now, like God, like, oh, the Christians have a God, uh, and the Muslims have a God, and, uh, and the Jews have a God, and, and everyone's got a God, and we all got a God, and, uh, but, it, but it's all kind of the same. Now, our God exists in three unique persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so if any other God, Allah, does not exist in those three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're not the same God. Because our God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not true. And it's, this one's a very easy one to get caught up in. Well, can't we just all agree on God? No, we can't all agree on God because your God is the false God. That's idol worship, and I don't worship idols. Okay? You're not going to talk me into it. That's why doctrine before fellowship. 
Doctrine before fellowship, okay? I, I, listen, I will be friends. I'll explain fellowship later. We can be friends with people who don't agree with us, but this type of fellowship is reserved for people who agree with this, okay? That's not exclusive, okay? It, it's, it, it's by the very nature of Christ's body. Why would we pollute Christ's body? Okay, next one. This is my favorite. Well, I don't know if you're allowed to have a favorite heresy, but <laughs> um, this, this one. My God, my God. Yeah, this one hits home. People will say, well, my God. Oh, yeah, tell me about him. Or her, right? <laughs> Somebody sent me a video the other day of a church singing, oh, how she loves us. Then they switch into the next chorus. Oh, how they love us. Okay? Bringing your pronouns into our worship songs. I mean, that's what it was. Right? My God. Let me tell you about my God. My God would never send people to hell. My God would never say that's wrong. My God would understand. My God Every time you use the phrase, my God, what you're really saying is if I were God. If I were God. If I were God. If I were God. Let me tell you not. Let me tell you. Who God is, is who he says he is in here. That's who he is. Okay? We don't get to make him up. That's offensive. That's offensive. You want to know about your God? In Acts chapter 5, a married couple walks in, lies to the pastors of the church about how much they sold the field tour, and God strikes them dead. My God would never do that. No, he did do it. He did. And that was in the new covenant, not the old one. And guess what? That's exactly how he feels about sin today. He still feels the exact same way. Every one of us should walk in here and get struck by lightning. And he doesn't do it. You know why? Because he's laughing and gracious and kind, but he still hates sin. Don't make up your God. Worship the real one. That's number one. We're just getting warmed up. Number two. We believe, I, again, I have to move through this quickly, and so I know that I am, okay? Number two. We believe the Bible is God's word. It is. In the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament is inspired and accurate. It is our perfect guide in all matters of life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. I, should, I would try to quote it, but I memorize it in the NIV as like a seven-year-old. Now it just comes out all jumbled. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's talk about this. When you change the scriptures, then the man and woman cannot be equipped for every good work. See how these things tie together? If it's no longer inspired, if it's no longer accurate, if it's no longer God's word, then you can't arrive at the conclusion that it says that you're supposed to arrive at, which is to be equipped for every good work. Now, before I get into the heresies, I'm going to go into something that's a step below heresy. It isn't a heresy, but it is a problem. And here's one of the problems, that um, we have de-elevated teaching so much in the nature and the context of the church and in our Christianity. We have lowered it down to teaching the fullness of Scripture and changed it into motivation or changed it into just some kind of rah-rah, or we've made teaching one of the lowest things um, that we rally around. And where we do that, we are not equipped. Like, um, uh, people will say this, they're like, well, well, why do you go to church somewhere? Well, I really like the fellowship. You can find friends elsewhere. Well, my, my kids love it. There are daycares and schools. 
and places where kids can go and make friends. Those are not bad things. But the church rallies around the apostles' teaching. The church rallies around the truth, and the truth must be communicated through teaching. And so some people are like, well, um, I get my teaching from over here or over there or somewhere else, and then I just like to be a part of something. No, if your heart is no longer in line, aligned, challenged by the teaching of a particular place, and you just want to be a part of that for all of the other reasons, you are no longer within a biblical context for why you should be a part of a church. You're not. The, 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 the teaching was the first thing they rallied around. And I'm not calling myself an apostle, just to clarify here, okay? Like, that's not what I'm saying here. I am saying that, that, that the teaching of a body, of a ministry, of a church is what people are to rally around. And from a very practical perspective, I can tell you this, the first sign, the first sign always of division uh, um, arising in a church or in a person is when people begin to step away from the teaching. I've seen it my whole life. I've seen it my whole life. Well, I don't, I don't like the teaching. 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 Oh, but I love this and I love that and I love that. Nope, your heart is no longer. This was the, was the first thing they devoted themselves to. It was. It is absolutely essential for the unification and for the, the, the completion and the equipping of the body. Is teaching. Okay, it's not a heresy, maybe just a pet peeve. So, moving on. Let me give you some heresies, because there's many, many of those too. Number one, eliminating or discrediting the Old Testament. Unfortunately, Andy Stanley wrote a book. Everybody, um, not everybody, lots of people read it and started thinking, maybe we shouldn't talk about the Old Testament. Maybe the Old Testament is irrelevant. Maybe it's not helpful to talk about the Old Testament. That's wrong. That's wrong. The entire Bible is relevant, okay? And the entire Bible needs to be studied, and the entire Bible needs to be understood, and the entire Bible uh, needs to be talked about uh, within the context of our church. And uh, there's things in the New Testament, right, that uh, you don't even fully understand, right, until you understand the history of what was going on in the Old Testament. And it makes the gospel even so much more beautiful when you understand it. Number two. Again, I got to move fast. The anti-Paul movement. You see this typically, uh, uh, there's a lot of more progressive leaning um, doctrinal statements now. And they'll say things like this. Well, Jesus never said, or I just like the writings of Paul. Or I'm sorry, I don't like the writings of Paul. I just like the gospels. And so the gospels become their entire Bible. This is out of step with historical Christianity. It leads to very dangerous doctrinal slides. Okay, we can't understand historical Christianity uh, and we can't stand on the full affirmation of scripture unless we affirm all of scripture. The very verse that we use often to affirm scriptures was written by Paul. And so if we just throw Paul out, right? Well, then now we're gonna throw that verse out. And, uh, and, and so then now let's just question everything, which is what ends up happening. We have to remember that Paul was writing under the power of the Holy Spirit. And that what he wrote is as relevant and as powerful and as much God's word as every other word in scripture. Number three, we like to pick and choose or people pick and choose. I like this. I don't like this. I like that. I don't like this. Get your Sharpie out and cross out all the things you don't like. Not good. Number four, Greek gymnastics to eliminate personal conviction or eternal damnation. Rob Bell made this one popular. Wrote a book. Oh, do we really understand this? I mean, his book starts off with Gandhi is in hell. Really? Right? Gandhi, who wasn't a Christian? Writes the Christian author is in hell. Really? Yes! Unless he, I don't know, deathbed confession. Who knows? Right? If he's not a believer in Christ, that has been the position of historical Christianity. Just because a dude in cool glasses and curly hair writes a book doesn't change historical Christianity. Okay? And, and listen, um, uh, let me say this. I'm wearing my, I, I didn't do this intentional, but it hit me when I was standing. Okay, I'm wearing my Axe shirt, right? Okay, and then I have this delightful jacket over top of it, okay? Or some of you are like, that's literally the worst jacket I've ever seen. That's okay, all right? Not gonna be offended, okay? All right? I don't know if you're clapping because you like it or hate it, but that's okay. All right. So, have my Axe shirt on underneath. Put the jacket on over top, right? 
still wearing the shirt. Just because I dressed it up a little bit doesn't mean I'm not wearing the shirt. Modern day, we dress our heresies up. We, we dress them up and we use cool words like deconstructionism or evangelicalism. We look cooler when we're making our videos, ranting about our heresies. We get other people to agree with them who have large followings as if to say, if a lot of people are heretics, then it must be okay. Group think our way to heresy, label it with something else. Heresy is still heresy no matter how cool it looks. It's all still wrong. And don't get sucked into it. Don't get sucked into it and think, oh, they relabeled it, and so it's really okay. No, it isn't. If it violates these truths that we're laying out today, it's not okay. I don't care how cool it looks. Okay? I don't care how cool the person who's propagating it looks. I don't care how many other people start to agree with it. It's still wrong. It's still wrong. Most doctrinal distortion is rooted in an attempt to find rest with a known rejection of God. Let me say that again. Most doctrinal distortion is rooted in an attempt to find rest with a known rejection of God. Typically, this is because of either a transformation of personal behavior or individual expression, either in you or someone else, or because uh, you, you come to grips with eternal damnation, particularly in people you've lost and go, I just don't know if I can come to grips with it. And so either one of those two things typically drives doctrinal distortion and leads then to the statement that I talked about earlier, my God, my God, my God, would never, my God, what, my God, my God. Okay, listen, I can understand all of that underneath, 100%, 100%. The solution, though, is not to chase after something false. The solution is to believe in the power of the thing that is true, the gospel, to transform and change. That's the solution. And to uphold that even more. Number three, number three. We believe sin has separated us all from God and that we are reconciled only through Jesus Christ. Those who persistently reject Christ will in their eternal state exist in a conscious isolation from God in endless torment and anguish. Hell. Yes, we believe in hell. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I have a four-week-old. I can affirm to you they are sinful by nature. Okay? We're born in it. All historical Christianity has always professed the doctrine of original sin, that we are born into this. Then there was a guy by the name of Pelagius, and he tried to distort this by uh, trying to say, well, no, we're mostly good. There's just a little bit of error in us, or we're kind of good and we're kind of bad. Historical Christianity has always rejected this typically through the doctrine of the understanding of total depravity laid out in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. When I say total depravity, by the way, I don't mean that no human isn't capable of doing anything good. What I mean is no human is capable of doing anything righteous. And so you might, and I, and people who are not in Christ might do good things, right? Whatever, the, whatever those good things are, right? They, 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 might, they might be good to society. And there are lots of people, by the way, this is where this one gets distorted a lot. There are lots of very good people, nice people, kind people, delightful people who are not in Christ. And sometimes you see these good, kind, nice people who are not in Christ and you go, no, this must be okay. People are still capable of doing good, but we're not capable of doing righteous, of being righteous. Not apart from the saving power of of Christ. We are not. And we believe that sin, that innate sin, separates us all from God 
That we are reconciled then only through Jesus Christ. That's why the next words of that after it says, they were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, says this, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. He then goes on to say, um, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's a very humbling verse because he's, uh, it, Paul is explaining how our salvation isn't even about us. Our salvation is that it would point to the goodness of Jesus. That it would point to the goodness of Jesus. We believe that we are, right, we are saved uh, um, only by Christ. And then those who persistently, uh, as we have it right here, those who persistently reject Christ will in their eternal state exist in a conscious isolation from God in endless torment and anguish. Here are the common heresies. Number one, universalism. Uh, everybody will be fine in the end. Number two, annihilationism. Uh, there will not exist a conscious state apart from God. Number three, uh, a loving God can't send people to hell. Number four, uh, I alluded to this one already, total depravity versus general goodness. Uh, just, and this is where the self-help gospel, by the way, gets its power. The self-help gospel gets its power from this particular idea. Well, you're really not that bad. You're really kind of okay. And here are a couple of ways that I can help you become a little bit better. And it's rooted in individualism, and it's rooted uh, in this perception or this idea of self uh, as uh, really more important than Christ. And these are all wrong. They're all wrong. What do we believe instead? We'll, we'll get to what we believe on salvation in a second, but let's talk about the one who saves us first. We believe Jesus Christ is both God and man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He led a sinless life. He took all our sins upon himself. He died and rose again. And we are saved by his shed blood. Today, he is seated at the right hand of the Father as our high priest and mediator. He will return for his church. Colossians chapter 1. This verse gets me every time I read it. Every time I read it. Makes your heart just beat a little bit faster. Reminds you of the one who rescued you. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There we are. Did anyone else remember the order of those by being taught, go eat popcorn? Anyone else? No? It's very helpful. Okay? You can remember that in the future. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It's a little warm. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to recognize Reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. By the way, there's one on here that I didn't even list, but I want to hit it real quick because it ties into what we're talking about right now as we are kind of working our way through Acts chapter 2. We get to verse 17, and it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. It then goes on to say that in everything, including his church, he might be preeminent. We say this around here all the time, this is God's church. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that Jesus is the head and the Holy Spirit is the power. And if Jesus isn't the head and the Holy Spirit isn't the power, then it's not a church because Jesus is the head of the church. What I want to correct real quick is that there is an idea, a false idea, that it comes from Acts chapter 2. Remember how I talked about some people idol worship Acts chapter 2 in the church that was present there and reject or disregard the rest of the scriptures? There comes this idea sometimes that the Holy Spirit is supposed to be the leader of the church. That's offensive. He's not. Jesus is. They exist in three unique persons. Don't take Jesus's job and give it to another. Jesus is preeminent. He's above all things, and he is the head of the church. And when we say that someone else is the head of the church, whether it's a person 
right? Or the Holy Spirit. That's wrong. And some of you are like, aren't you splitting hairs? Why would the scriptures be so clear then? Why would it say over and over that Jesus is the head of his church? Because he is. And so around here, when we say that this is God's church, what do we mean? We mean that Jesus is in charge because he's the head. He's the head, right? And then he lays out in his scriptures how he wants us to operate. And he lays it out and he sets up a structure. And we see that through the rest of the scriptures. And that structure, uh, uh, we'll get this into Acts chapter 6, when we hit Acts chapter 6 in 2030, right? And we'll, uh, he, he lays it out, right? That there's a structure then and the proper establishment. And that's how he leads and he operates. What's the Holy Spirit's role then? To bring power into the structure that Christ has laid out. I hope that makes sense. This is important. It's important because we have seen a lot of distortion in the church, okay? Uh, it's rampant in this country. It's rampant elsewhere when we, when we misrepresent these two things, when we, when we, when we believe, right, uh, um, that, that, that the Holy Spirit is somehow, right, has an authority over Jesus in the makeup of the church. Jesus is the head of his church. To say anything else is offensive, don't make Jesus subservient in a place that he was not choosing to be subservient. Okay, that's the first one. Let me get a couple more. Number two, to deny Christ's deity. To deny Christ's deity. This one was from the very uh, beginning. It was actually the very first heresy. The very first heresy was that Jesus wasn't God. Uh, by the way, if we think things have changed, things haven't changed, right? And people are believing the same things uh, again. Number two, not believing in Jesus' sinlessness. Get this, okay? I don't like go around searching for these things, but sometimes people send them to me, and it's really helpful when they do, uh, that there's this idea uh, that has swept through Christianity uh, that, that Jesus uh, wasn't sinless. There was a Barna study done, and they asked only people who profess to be evangelical Christians, and they asked them, How, what percentage of you, or what, do you think Jesus was sinless? 48% said, no, he wasn't sinless. 42% said, yes, he was. I know that doesn't equal 100. There are other options. Okay. More evangelical, claiming evangelical Christians. Not just like I claim to be a Christian, but I claim to be a Christian and I believe in the full authority of Scripture and all of these other things. Believe that Jesus sinned and that he did not. This, what we're doing again this morning, is very important. Because if our church reflects this, it means that 48% of us have a heretical view of Jesus' nature. That's bad. Jesus was sinless. He, he, he never sinned. And, and Jesus' sinlessness is very, very important. Because the, the thing that creates our redemption, the thing that creates our salvation is this. It's Jesus' sinlessness plus his blood sacrifice equals our redemption. And people try to pull out both of them. First, they want to pull out his, his, sinless, his, sinful, or the, his sinlessness and say, no, he sinned, okay? If Jesus sinned, then he has no righteousness to impute to us. Or then they'll try to pull out the blood sacrifice, right? It is believing both of these things. Oh, the, the shed blood of Christ wasn't necessary, right? We read through Hebrews how it is absolutely essential. And so people want to pull these things out. And the power, or I'm sorry, the problem of pulling out either Jesus' uh, sinlessness or uh, the, the necessity of the bloodshed of Christ is that if you pull those out, then you no longer have a gospel. If you no longer have a gospel, then you no longer have the thing that can change anybody. That's the problem. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, anyone would change the gospel, let him be cursed. Well, here's a way people change the gospel. They change it by saying Jesus wasn't sinless, and they change it by saying the blood sacrifice wasn't necessary. That destroys the power of the gospel. The only gospel that, that actually transforms human life. The only gospel that does is the gospel that preaches Jesus was fully God and fully man. He never sinned, and he went to the cross as the payment for your sins, and his shed blood satisfied the wrath of God, and so now you and I can walk in Christ's righteousness. That's the gospel that changes people, and so we have to hold on to all of it. Next, 
We believe that salvation is the gift of God to man. This gift is affected by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and it produces works pleasing to God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. I will say this until every one of us has heard it over and over and over. When you put Ephesians 2.10, which was the last thing that I quoted before Ephesians 2.8 and 9, which talks about how we are saved only by grace and not by our own doing, you create the most miserable people in the world because they think it will be my works that will justify me. And many of us, even though doctrinally we wouldn't say that it is true, functionally we operate like it is our works and our righteousness uh, that we earn our salvation and right standing before God. And we wouldn't say that doctrinally, but functionally we believe it. And we have built this case in our own head. We have built this idea in our own head that you or I are justified because we have done good things, because we show, showed up to church, because we didn't sin when somebody else did, because, because I, because I, because I, because I. And this verse is the consummate reminder that it is because Jesus. It's because of Jesus. And then after that, what do we do? We say, oh, I want to work for him. That guy saved me. He has saved me from an eternal state, conscious state of torment and anguish. He saved me when I didn't deserve it. He saved me when I was rejecting him. He saved me, and it wasn't because I was good. I will do whatever he asks of me. That's the Christian position. How can I not look at the one who saved me out of that when I didn't do any of the work, and he did all of the work, and possibly withhold anything from him? That's what it all comes down to. And most of us withhold from him because we still think that we did some of the work. And you didn't. You did it. He did it. And then he says, I've got great stuff for you to now go do. Cool. I want to do it. Let me do it. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. That's the Christian position. Next. Oh, actually, let me, let me hit a couple other statements here. Um, the old reformers used to say it this way, grace alone, by faith alone, people still say it this way, grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. Quoting uh, a theologian, R.C. Sproul, faith is a sufficient condition for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to us. It's beautiful. Thank you, Christ. That by faith, by faith. Goes on to say this. It makes all the difference in the world whether the ground of my justification rests within me or is accomplished for me. Let me clarify that again. It makes all the difference in the world whether the ground of my justification rests within me or is accomplished for me. Which one do you believe? Why are you justified before Christ? Because of something in you? Or because of something done for you? I went on to explain. why. By the way, this is why it also gives me great hope. This is why whenever anyone is like telling me about somebody else in their life, somebody's caught up in this or somebody's caught up in that, whatever, okay, I believe in a gospel that can come in and upend all of that and change them in a second. What you're going to tell me about somebody else isn't going to scare me because I know that the gospel is more powerful to drive that thing out. Now, if you come and tell me and say, hey, Stephen, you need to go convince this person in sin that they need to for, uh, get rid of their sin and they need to uh, now um, take on the path of Christianity and you got to intellectually convince them, or you have to yell and scream enough, that scares me. That scares me. I would much rather rely on the incredible power of Christ blowing up and bringing them to their knees. That, that is powerful. And he does that. We believe, next, we believe that water baptism is an outward act that demonstrates a believer's identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We do. Now, this one, I'm going to take a second and pause. Okay. Baptism. Wow, there's a lot of people that disagree on baptism. Get this. There's an entire denomination started over this. You know what they're called? Baptists. Okay. I need a drink. Okay. There are certain elements of baptism that some people disagree on under, I would say, the Protestant banner that I could say, you know what? We can have conversations. 
We can, we can probably discuss around this, and I would say that there is a way of understanding baptism that wouldn't necessarily take you completely out of line with historical Christianity, okay? In fact, I would say one of the cool things that I think we're seeing right now is that um, people who used to be heavily divided, particularly over the issue of baptism, have begun to unite over all the rest of these particular topics, um, because they've realized, you know, in the midst of a, the crazy world and culture that we live in, um, let's not split over this one. I was um, uh, talking to an individual who is trying to facilitate the merging of two different churches, uh, and they're, they, they um, uh, are currently meeting uh, in the building, both of them at the same time. And uh, one of them are Baptists, and the other one, the thing that separates them from the Baptists is their view of baptism. It's great. Like, literally, it's exactly what we've been talking about. And the person is trying to facilitate the merging of the two into one. I thought that, I think, is a beautiful picture of unity. Let me say this another way. More than ever before, I think even Baptists and Presbyterians are looking at each other and being like, we should be friends. We should be friends. We agree about a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. And I think we're actually seeing this um, uh, throughout the church right now, nationwide, that people are saying, listen, if you believe in everything else we've talked about this morning, okay, let's just be friends and let's go win people with the gospel, okay? But we did have to put down a position, so there's our position. Next. And I know maybe there might be a temptation for some of us in here to be like, I feel like we're splitting hairs over things um, that aren't... Uh, or maybe, like you think, I feel like this is unnecessary. Let me just say this. I say this with as much love as possible. If you think that what we're doing this morning is unnecessary, you are not seeing the way the church is under absolute assault. Absolute assault. That these things that we used to all take for granted as believing are now just being thrown out the window left and right. And as they are, the passage we read back in Matthew that church, the church that does not stand on these truths will not last. It won't last. By the way, that is the good thing about the heretical church. It doesn't have any power, so eventually it will die. That is the good thing. Next, we believe the Holy Spirit is our comforter. He guides us in all areas of our lives. He also blesses us with spiritual gifts, and he empowers us to yield the fruit of the Spirit. I had a conversation with a guy last night who, uh, he's like, I've been in a lot of churches in my life, and, um, and, and, and he said, this is the first church I've ever been in that talks about the Holy Spirit. He's been in church since he was a little kid, and he goes, this is the first church I've ever been in that talks about the Holy Spirit. He's like, and he just, he's like, he's like it's amazing how it changes everything. I'm like, yes, it does, because you and I were never meant to live this Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. Never. It's impossible. Paul called anyone who wanted to do that foolish. Right? And that's why then he wrote one of the most famous passages on the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Beautiful passage. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Then he goes on to say this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. The Holy Spirit is essential to being able to live out our faith. Now, we have spent an ample amount of time talking about the Holy Spirit um, over the, uh, when I say ample, we could always talk about all of these things more. I mean, in context to how much time we have on the weekend. Um, over the last few weeks and months. And I'm very proud of the work that we've done. I'm very proud of what we've laid out. Uh, and some of you, you're just hopping in, uh, hopping into our church, and you might have missed some of those. Uh, and so we put a list of everything that I've preached on on the Holy Spirit this year. Uh, and so if you want that, you can email Jamie, J-A-M-E-Y, at experienceredemption.com. She'll just send you over the link. It's got all the sermons linked in there, a brief explanation of what's going on there. And for some of them that were full sermons, it's got um, excerpts of the sermon. So you can go in there and, and, and you can go to the timestamp. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, of when I bring up the Holy Spirit, um, because I do think this is really, really important. Now, uh, instead of diving into this, because I've spent so much time on it over the last few months, I do just want to read a statement. I wrote it down so I would say it correctly. Every believer has the Holy Spirit upon salvation, and every believer should desire being filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of using spiritual gifts and being transformed. Some expressions call this baptism, based on Jesus' word in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. 
or subsequent experience. And other expressions call it spiritual growth, filling, or anointings for specific gifts or times, based in part on Ephesians 5.18. For the sake of unity, I can be comfortable with both. For the sake of unity, I encourage us to focus on the similarities, not the differences of our beliefs. All Christians should want to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in both their personal lives and in the church, praying for, whether by oneself or for one another, to experience a filling of the Holy Spirit should be common practice and acceptable to all genuine expressions of the faith. Okay? Now, some of you got lost. That's okay. I can also send you this if you want. What's the point? The point is this, and I, I laid this point out a couple months ago. The Holy Spirit was the most unifying thing the world has ever seen, bringing the church together in Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2, empowering it. And, and even later, we're told about the unifying power of the Holy Spirit and then how the Holy Spirit works, right, under Christ's headship, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit works in the church to empower it, right, to see the manifestation of gifts, uh, and the utilization of them, all things that every Christian should desire, okay? But unfortunately, what was supposed to be the most unifying thing became one of the most divisive things in the history of the church. And so what we have decided is that we're simply not going to divide over what was supposed to be unifying. And instead, we're going to understand uh, that uh, in some of these arguments, both sides bring up very good and very powerful scriptural points and are rooted in the Bible and are rooted in scripture Okay, And historical Christianity would agree with everything that I read in our statement of faith. Everything that I have said underneath that, some of those things are things that came along later and led to a lot of the denominational and uh, differences that we have in experience. Okay? And you say, well, show me a picture of a church, right, that has begun to, uh, that has worked their way through doctrinal differences to arrive at unity like that. The first one. That was a picture of it. They kept coming back to things, and they kept coming back to things. And what did they always try to do? They always tried to come into a place and say, okay, we're going to make this decision, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do it for the sake of unity. And I'm just asking that we would do that here. Next, we believe the Holy Communion is a celebration of Jesus' death and our remembrance of him. We believe Holy Communion is a celebration of Jesus' death and our remembrance of him. And so we're going to take communion today. You can go ahead and pull out your communion cup. Michael, Michael's here. If you, if you need a communion cup, go ahead and grab one from Michael. He'll walk around to you. Now, when it comes to communion, there are typically, there, there is the obvious difference that we would have, right, with the Catholic faith. Okay, there's that obvious difference. Outside of that, within, within Protestant Christianity, the questions um, that tend to uh, get brought up around communion are this. How often and with what attitude? Those are the questions. And, you know, to answer the how often question, um, we take it whenever we meet as a church family. So we'll take it Wednesday night when we meet for church night. Uh, we always take it during our worship nights. Whenever we kind of have a smaller group or a smaller, smaller gathering, we always take communion together. Uh, and we think it's kind of like a family gathering to do that. Uh, somebody sent me an email this week that I was like, eh, it's a helpful email. And they said, hey, we used to take it more on the weekend. Uh, is there a reason or was it a conscious decision to not to? It really wasn't. Uh, it just kind of happened. Uh, and so, you know, I thought that's a good reminder that to, to, to work at implementing communion more frequently on the weekend service in addition to where we already take it in our church nights, our worship nights, and all of those other smaller gatherings that we participate in. Okay, that answers the first question. The second question then is with what attitude? With what attitude do you take communion? Well, uh, I think there's two things that always have to be present with communion. Number one is that it is a, it is a practice of remembrance. And these words are in the scriptures that teach us that. Practice uh, number two is I think communion always has to be uh, uh, taken either respectfully or reflectively. E either word. That there's a nature of respect and reflection underneath it. Now, I would submit this, that uh, the, the remembrance element and the, the reflection or the respect element underneath communion could lead to two different types 
of attitude when it comes to communion. One attitude can be very um, um, reflective, uh, kind of very quiet. You would say in some sense almost somber-ish. And some of you probably grew up in environments where communion was always very much that. But I would say this, that biblically speaking, we can be both reflective and uh, respectful and remember everything, and, and as we follow down that and align with all of that, that, that communion can actually have a celebratory nature to it. And that, that, that is not, that's not heresy. That's not unbiblical. Because what are we remembering and reflecting upon? The fact that Jesus went to the cross and paid for our sins, that he allowed his body to be broken, and you, you, uh, you, you do this in fellowship with one another, with other believers, and you're sitting around in that moment, and you're taking communion, and you're looking at one another, and you're going, man, he did it for me, and he did it for you, and you've believed it, and I've believed it, and you've been changed, and I've been changed, and we've all been changed, and then when all of us got changed, he, he planted the same Holy Spirit, inside of us and now we're unified by that spirit and Jesus is leading his church and his Holy Spirit is giving us different gifts and we come back around and we take communion together and we remember that all over again and then we're charged up and ready to go and that's church that's church and so when you take communion, I've told this story before, there was a time in my life when I had a conflict with some other believers. And when I had a conflict with them, I sent them uh, a request. I said, hey, can we sit down? Can we sit down and take communion together? And they responded with, no, no, we can't. And in, in my mind, that's when I knew that I knew that I knew this is over. Like this, this, this friendship, this partnership, all of this, it's done. Because if we can no longer sit down and unify around this, we're done. And, and this, 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 uh, this morning, I've talked so long, it's almost afternoon. I got three minutes. This, this morning, this morning, we're going to take communion. And it's a chance for us to circle back around and to look at each other and go, man, he rescued you too. He rescued you. He rescued you. He did it to me too. Isn't it great? Isn't it amazing? And then to look and say, okay, he rescued you and he rescued me. And we all now have a common Holy Spirit who is powerful and transforms us and wants to release his ministry into his church. And I'm so glad to be doing it with you. And in part, when we take communion this morning, um, we're taking it together. You are taking it as an individual, but we're taking it together. We're taking it together as a body of Christ saying we are unified to operate as one for the sake of his gospel. And so let me just read the passage of scripture. And by the way, I'm not trying to elevate what communion is about. I'm not saying it's a covenant of a church. I'm, I'm just saying that there's something about the church coming together and taking communion together that brings us back and centers us back around Jesus brings us all to the same table again. And in that, I do believe there should be a power for us to look at each other and say, and because of that, now I do want to walk hand in hand for all that God would have. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Where you're at, go ahead and break the bread. Go ahead and partake. If you haven't already, open up the juice. Father, we think and remember the blood shed out for us as the payment for sin. Thank you. Go ahead and partake. Before you head out, I'd like to end with this. Three pledges. Pledge number one, 
to study the scriptures and to develop a solid doctrinal foundation that you and I would continue to study these core doctrines so that we would be built on the rock. Number two, to never waver as individuals or as a church on the statements that we've agreed to today. Life will get hard. There will be temptation to do so. Center back. And number three, to discuss and not divide on secondary issues, but to stand in unity for the sake of Christ's prayer that we would all be one. Would you guys stand with me? pray. Father, some of these truths some of us learned a long, long time ago, or perhaps we have forgotten some, or we've gone even gray on, okay, what is this, or what is that, or we've forgotten the importance. And Father, I pray that as a church, for all that your church exists to be, your hands and feet, the messenger of the gospel, to the world, that for all of those reasons, that we would exist here in unity and togetherness, that you would allow us through the power of your Holy Spirit to surrender our own rights, to die to self, to be unified together for the purpose and the power of your body, that it would be then what it is supposed to be. Yes, the pillar and buttress of the truth, but also the strategy to redeem your world through your gospel. And I pray that you would form that in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.